1: Hello and welcome. Before you dive into this great episode with Aja Barber, I just wanted to say it wasn't until I was listening to the edit of this episode that I realized my amazing podcasting mic, my Blue Yeti mic, had not properly connected to the podcasting platform that I use. It's only happened a couple of times and usually I catch it. I do a sound check at the start of every recording to just say, if I mute myself, can you still hear me? And if they can't, we're all good to go because it's using my microphone. So that is to say, the sound on this episode is decent. You can hear me, it's fine, but it's not as clear as usual. So I just wanted to encourage you to please stick with us in spite of the fact that this isn't its usual studio quality sound, because I promise you the content is worthwhile and it's definitely worth just turning up the volume a little bit listening a little more intently when I am speaking. So as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time and enjoy this episode with Aja Barber.
2: Well, I'm sitting here a little bit starstruck because I'm going to be interviewing and having a very, very entertaining conversation, no doubt, with someone I have followed for a long time on social media. And I just love who they are in the world. I love what they say. I love what their passion is. I love that all the time without apology, and even when it's hard, even when they get hate messages, they keep speaking the truth about fast fashion in particular. So let me introduce you to Aja Barber. She is a writer and sustainability consultant whose work focuses on fashion and the intersection of politics, feminism, and race. Her website says she's a writer, stylist, and consultant whose work deals with the intersections of all of those things, and her work builds heavily on ideas behind privilege, Wealth inequality, racism, feminism, colonialism, and how to fix the fact with all these things in mind. She also likes your dog 99% of the time. Which I mean, if I weren't already a fan, that would tip me over. But she was born and raised in the US, on the East Coast, and now lives in London in the UK. So we were having a little chat before I pressed record about being a bit of a hybrid and sort of belonging everywhere, nowhere. Those people who I see her posts often, and I just find myself saying yes. She also recently, in September 2021, her first book came out, and it's called Consumed The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change, and Consumerism. I'm holding it up on camera, which if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see, but it is so dog eared. It's basically just dog eared. And I opened it, I started reading it, and then I literally had to clear my schedule to finish it. I read it in two days, and it is both readable informative, challenging, empowering, and then a little bit more challenging. So Aja manages to weave in a lot of her personal story and her personal passion about why she focuses on how much the fast fashion industry is breaking society and our planet, while also giving really strong facts to back that up and then giving us something we can do about it. So we'll talk a lot about that. The first part of the book is all about making the case for why we should all be really, really uncomfortable about this. And the second half of the book is what you can do about it. Not us. Yes, us collectively. But what can you do about it? So I encourage you to order a copy from an independent publisher or a, a source that is not start with A and end with Mazan. <laughs> but find yourself a copy of this book. It is incredible. And uh, bring it to your book club. Start a book club. Learn from it. So the reason we're here today is because I've been aware of this for a long time, but nobody puts it better than Aja does, because the fashion industry is one of the leading culprits of greenhouse gas emissions, produces 10% of humanity's greenhouse gas emissions. The way that we are built to consume and pushed to consume clothing without really thinking about it to create a sense of belonging for ourselves is not sustainable. And it's an industry who are using humans... And natural resources from our planet at an unsustainable rate. So it is a big area to get uncomfortable about. Because, you know, I'm a lady who likes to look good. But I can't do that when I know that it has cost someone human suffering, it has cost them their ability to send their children to school, or Like I see sequins on something made by a high street brand and I automatically just think, oh my God, child labor. So I know too much because I've worked in fair trade and I am so on board with Aja's approach to this. So welcome to season three of the discomfort practice where we're talking about the discomfort of change and how that does often mean we ourselves need to get uncomfortable about something in order to move forward together and create a society and planet where everyone can thrive. So welcome Aja, I am thrilled to have you here.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I also want to say as someone who used to always delight when they put out like the holiday dresses and like the different store windows, I now shudder uh, child labor, but additionally the microplastics because sequins (sighs) like their more expensive cousins, the diamond are forever. And that sequin dress that you bought to wear one time to a party those sequins are going to be on the planet for far longer than your body will. Your body will decompose much quicker than those sequins will. Those sequins will be here for a very long amount of time. And so now, when I see all of the holiday stuff and it's covered in sequins, I just think about our ocean being full of microplastics. So, yay! Welcome to the show, Captain Killjoy. <laughs>
1: let's get uncomfortable okay so this is going to be an
2: uncomfortable and delicious conversation i can tell we're both people who like we hear stuff like that and we just laugh because it's like this stuff (laughs) needs to be said it needs to be known we can't hold this to ourselves any longer everybody needs to know this stuff to stop participating exceptionalize
3: the stuff the less the desire is there for me. That's the thing, is that at mm-hmm. first, when you're so into these systems that you can't separate yourself from the identity of consumer, you don't want to know about this stuff because you're like, la, 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 don't tell me you're going to ruin my fun. I know, I was that person. If you're that person, we, we're we all there. Consumerism is drilled in our heads from a very young age if you're existing, particularly in a global North wealthy country. So we're all there. So when you're that person that doesn't want to know, you absolutely don't want to know. But when you're the person that also knows that it's bad, and you're ready to make the change, it's good to know these things. Because when you're passing that window, you will be reminded that actually, no, you don't actually need a holiday party trust, because one, you're not going to any holiday parties, because we're in a pandemic. And two, you know, you don't need it. You can borrow something from a friend. If you really need something, you could do rental. You can borrow from a friend. You can wear something that's already in your closet, but you don't actually need the new stuff just because the messaging that's being sent to you constantly is that that's what you need. So, in some ways, people say, like, you know, how do you how do you stay on the straight and narrow path? How do you not participate in this way? I read and write about this stuff all day every day. That's how.
2: Once you know, you can't unknow. And yeah. I mean, wow, well, I haven't even asked my first question yet. But yeah, it was really when I started, I ran a national fair trade body in Scotland and worked directly with fair trade clothing producers and artisans and farmers of coffee and tea and chocolate. And once you start to realize that everything you have has human labor as part of it. And if there isn't an an independent label or someone you have a relationship with and trust telling you that exploitation wasn't involved, just assume it is. If you're not buying fair trade chocolate, there was probably child labor involved in that cocoa production. Just, you know, try to feel good about that as you sit and eat some chocolate while watching a movie one night with your boyfriend or whatever. So you just can't feel good about this stuff once you know it. And then you have to seek a way to feel good and it means changing your habits. And the good news is it's possible to do things that can genuinely make you feel good. You don't just have to numb it or ignore it.
3: They like, there's no consumerism under capitalism. I love when people say that, like they're just gonna show up with a fire hose and shut the conversation down. <laughs> but like, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're like, well, you know, this was made by a four-year-old, so I guess I'll just give me 20. Hey, there's no ethical consumerism under capitalism, so I will take all of that sweatshop clothing. Thank you very much. Like, no, striving to do the least amount of harm to our fellow humans, even if it doesn't mean that that one purchase is going to equal automatic systemic change, that is still what we should be striving for if we are in the position to do so.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I jotted down a few quotes from your book, all caps. I'm going to use this as one of, one of my social media posts for this episode it was, you are so powerful. Every decision you make on this planet has an effect. So rather than shutting down conversations, just focus on the action. What can yeah. you do as a powerful being to have a better impact? Yeah, exactly. Love all of that pre-chat because wait, I have to ask you the first question. <laughs> and it's a good one which is what's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life and that drives who you are and what you do in the world.
3: Oh, so I, I write about this one in the book. Well, I don't know, maybe it was taken out. So I have always sort of, you know, struggled with like having low income and, you know, I grew up in the DC area. It's super affluent. Most of my peers, particularly if you work in like government or tech, or if you're in law, you're making pretty decent wage. Me and, you know, my, I was in the media, I was making like most years under $20,000 a year, which is nothing in that area. It's a good wage in some places for sure, but the DC area is super affluent. And so I was the person who was always moving in and out of my parents' basement, that sort of thing. One particular year I had made $15,000 And I had managed to keep all of my receipts from one fast fashion store in particular. And they had sort of amassed on my dresser. And one day I was cleaning and I started looking at the receipts and I thought, you know what, just for shits and giggles, I'm going to add this amount up. And I added up all of the receipts and I had spent um, more than 10% of the money I'd earned that year at that one store. And I wanted to kick my own ass, um, (laughs) to say the least. So that was a very uncomfortable moment where I was like, screaming internally, realizing that this is a corporation that is trashing the planet, that is owned by a billionaire who has four billionaires in that family. And I'm just handing them my money. What am I doing?
2: That's definitely a smack upside the head moment. Now that was not in the book. I do believe I'll go back and reread it, but yeah, that's, oh.
3: it was a screaming internally. Yeah.
2: But then that turned you more toward seeing the issues with all this, that like, I don't have that much money to spend and I just gave it to these billionaires.
3: I could actually spend $1,500 and get like pretty much a completely sustainable wardrobe that will wear for a lot longer. And like, I could do that. And that was a moment where I realized, yeah, I don't have a ton of money, but I still have like privileges if I'm spending money like this. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I need to start doing things differently. That was a moment. But you get a lot of these moments. When I moved, I live in the UK now. When I moved over here, I literally thought to myself, like, why do I have this amount of stuff? And I would say moving is definitely a great indicator of like, you don't need half the shit you buy because you don't want to move it.
2: To another country. Yeah. It's very clarifying. I've done it a few times.
3: How when I am in a store, if I can't decide about something, I ask myself, would I move this to another country? And if the answer is no, I put it down and I leave the store and you would be surprised (laughs) nine out of 10 times. The answer is actually no.
2: That's a good filter. That's a super good filter. Well, you, before we started pressing, well, before you we pressed record, because we were having a good old chat and I was like, hold on, we need to record this. <laughs> it's going well already. Stop, stop. I don't want my precious done with Asha Barber to not be recorded, but you were talking about how you've kind of always questioned these things. You've always been aware of just the, the lack of necessity of certain things. And I'm the same. Yeah. For some reason I just have that itch in my body to, fight for justice in the world to shield people from negative impact. I grew up in Wyoming and as a 17 year old, I found, I don't know how, this local, it was more or less sheltered housing, really Mm -hmm. private sheltered housing for HIV positive people in the Mm nineties in Wyoming. And I went and like, I cleaned for them and I shopped for them and it was mostly totally freaked out gay men who A were afraid of getting their asses kicked in cowboy country and B Mm -hmm. were kind of waiting to die of AIDS And I just, all I wanted to do was help them, which is interesting because I grew up in a family where like, you know, in our belief system, being gay is not okay with God, but for some reason, it just always had this passion for that. As members of my family. As like an eight-year-old, sort of dialing back, how did you become who you are because you've always been this way?
3: Yeah. So I was the eight-year-old who I've always been very, very, very sure of the image that I want to put out in the world, not through just like material possessions, but through what was on my body. So I cared a lot about like what I was wearing. And I grew up with a parent who, you know, my, my mother objectively grew up in like an impoverished background. And so for her, any hand-me-downs was like good clothing that you should be wearing. If you're not naked, you should wear this. And So that was like my earliest fights with my mom was about my clothing. And that really primed me to be a fast fashion consumer, which I was, obviously. Um, But I was always someone who thought deeply about these issues. I like learning how things work. I like seeing things grow. I like nature. I have never been like afraid of bugs or anything in the outdoors, really. I grew up living near a lake you know, stomping through creeks, picking up critters. When I was eight, I got my first Audubon Society book of identifying like wildflowers of North America. I moved on to insects. And uh, one day my mother randomly got me this book from the school book fair that was like 50 things kids can do to save the planet. And I didn't realize that the planet was in a bad place. And I was like, oh my God, like I, I really didn't have any idea about it. And so after that, I was just banging on constantly. Like, I'm pretty sure my mother actually regretted getting me that book at some point. Because, you know, as we talk about like plastic straws, which I'm, you know, I I think we need to go after the corporations, first and foremost, you know, but I try and I don't need a plastic straw. I don't take one. I don't, you know, I don't need to be that person but as an 8 year old i was seeing the plastic straws and realizing one day we'd be talking about this so i'm someone who has long term vision for how the things that we see as frivolous are actually not frivolous when 7.9 billion people are all doing the same thing you know and that's that's who i became i began to question systems but also like desire to be accepted because when you're the girl that likes playing in mud and you're dressed in your sister's hand downs from the eighties, not exactly being invited to the cool kids table, you know? <laughs> so like I, I desired to be accepted through my clothing, which from that grew a real interest in the fashion industry. I began to like, you know, see the fashion industry as something that I would like to, be a part of in the future. Um, I was also growing up in the nineties. So like Kate Moss became a very, uh, you know, well-known figure. I was learning about Alexander McQueen, Isabella Blow, uh, Mark Jacobs, all of these designers. I was being so, Ooh, this is really cool. Grunge is really cool. You know, I wanted to, I started shopping at thrift stores independent of my mother And I remember I wouldn't tell my peers because that was considered gross, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I just, I was someone who always cared about these things separately, but never really put it all together Mm -hmm. until my thirties, basically.
2: Ah, but what a good time to put it together when you have some firepower. Yeah, totally. you know
3: yourself. And I was also the person who used to write letters to corporations. That was, I started doing that. That's the big one. Started doing that like age 10. Like my parents used to call me the letter writer because I would do that. And the first couple of times I did it, I got sent like so much free stuff that I was like, <laughs> ooh, I should do this more often. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time I, my family had a really, really bad meal at a restaurant once. So I wrote them about it and they were like, Oh, my God. So they sent us like $200 worth of gift cards. And then when we went into the restaurant, they wouldn't let us use the gift cards. We no basically got so much money. And so after that, my parents were like, Aja, write a letter. <laughs> the power of
2: children, A, and the power of writing a letter, B. You make that point in your book about certain corporates have a policy of they talk about things in their board meetings if they get a certain amount of letters. So, hey. Totally. And standard. then I also...
3: I also got like really nice letters back. Like, I remember um, one of my first purchases from J. Crew, and J. Crew was not within my price range at all growing up. But I had spent this money when I was like probably 18, and I had gotten this sweater that had been on sale because J. Crew's. Pricing, I think, it's come down a lot. It yeah. used to be quite pricey. And I managed to get the sweater on sale for like $45, which in the 90s that was big money. And I wore it daily. I wore it so much that one of the armpits just ripped. <laughs> and so I wrote Mickey Drexel at the time, who was the CEO. And he wrote me back really nicely and sent me a gift card and was like, I hope you get the sweater repaired, but pick something else out that you like, you know? And I just thought that's really nice.
1: That is really nice.
3: Wow. And I keep those letters too.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a great record that it works, that actually you can have an impact. So no wonder you're so absolutely convinced that this is the thing that would help people to just take some action because you've seen it work. You have a track record. Yeah.
3: I mean, I've also written, so I do. And I've another com- company that I wrote was Target. So back in my 20s, I had bought a pair of boots from Target. They were really comfortable, very on trend, completely polyester. so I wouldn't buy them today. But I really liked the boots and they were like, I, I took them up to New York for one weekend, walked around the city and you walk a lot in New York, especially when mm. you're in your 20s and you don't have a lot of money. And the heel was completely just. Devoured, just horrible. And I thought, is it me? So then I bought another pair because it must have been me. And the same thing happened. So after that, I sat down on my computer again. I wrote to Target and I said, You need to discontinue these boots because there's no sense in making a product where it falls apart and you can't wear it more than 50 times. And they wrote back and asked me, Would you send the boots back? We'd like to study what happened with them and here's your money back and this and that. So, yes it does actually work. Yeah. Now I don't know if they yanked all of them from the shelves, but I am all about telling a company when the product that they're making doesn't actually serve the general public mm. in any way.
2: I love this backstory because it does it does explain who you are because this is who you are now. It well, and it Now it turns out this is who you have always been. So it sounds like
1: this is the moment in the world when, thank
2: God, the pandemic wouldn't let you leave your house and you were on Instagram all the time because it's brought all those pieces of you together and your purpose from the outside just seems so crystal clear. You know, it's all of these things that you've been doing all of your life that suddenly now all make sense as you were doing your 10,000 hours to master this and you didn't even know it as an eight-year-old
3: who was noticing there was a lot of time periods where, like, and I say this always, but like for much of my 20s, I was like the family loser, like moving in and out of my parents' mm-hmm. basement, not ever having like really steady full time employment, often working like three jobs. So, yes, I tell people when they ask me, how do I get to be, you know, where you are doing what you do? I always tell people, particularly students, The job that you might have in the future might not even be invented yet. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is chalk up those life experiences, but also always go in the direction of things that you're drawn towards. Yeah,
2: I totally agree. And I get this too, because sustainability is now a thing that you can get a a degree in. Mm -hmm. And so I get a lot of students who are like, will you mentor me? How did you get into what's your reading list? And I'm just like, honey, this wasn't even a thing. When I started, I just followed the things that I was passionate about and ended up in a job that now has a title retrospectively, you know, sort of 20
3: years after I started doing it. So yeah. You couldn't get a degree in this. You you couldn't. And now you can. But um, the people that are working in it and doing the most today did not go to school for it.
2: Exactly. And that also brings a certain type of mastery that you know, you won't get once you just learn about it all in university. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know some things that aren't going to be taught, but also we can probably yeah. benefit from learning from a lot of those younger activists or people who are getting degrees in what we've done for a long time. I agree. Um, I want to ask you, let's dive straight into why, well, what's wrong with fashion? And I like that you make the point in your book about how, and I stand corrected because I put this as a question initially about, like, why is the system broken? You make the point. The system isn't broken. The system is working absolutely as it's intended to. And also, corporations aren't moral entities. They're just big oil tankers that will point whichever direction you allow them to via regulation or consumer demand or all of this stuff is good to keep in mind. But so what's broken with the system? It's not broken, whatever you want to call it.
3: Where you have a system where you can go overseas to get a lower price through means of paying people less money we have to admit that there's a certain element of exploitation going on there like even if it's a good wage in that country why is it a good wage in that country Mm -hmm. why is it if it's not a good wage in our country it's a good wage for them you know and why is it that if let's be honest not a lot of stuff is made in america and the uk anymore if all of our raw materials, resources, and labor comes from other parts of the world, why aren't these countries richer?
2: I make such a good point in the book um, that the global South has the resources. They have the precious metals we put in our computers. They have the cotton that is grown for our clothes. They have, they have the resources
0: and
1: they the have food.
2: the cheap labor. Yeah. But why are they in abject poverty? in a lot of cases. Why do they have to use child labor? Why are children not in school
3: and they're working instead? The answer is because
2: we have colonialized them with our system of consumption.
3: And exploitation, yeah, it's just Mm -hmm. been, it's rife. And one of the biggest myths that I hear brands say that I always want to shut down, I just was particular to one brand, fast fashion brand that claims that they're going to be completely circular, but da-da-da-da. I've heard people within their leadership say, well, you know, when people get exploited within our supply chain, it's because the factory that we work with outsourced the labor and we don't really have control over that. No, you don't have control over that, but you do have control over the size of and quantity of clothes that you're being asked to to make in a short time frame because you know humans only work so fast. Mm-hmm. You do have control over the amount that you were paying for that order, which Oftentimes when you ask for something on low wages, yes, the work will be outsourced to a factory that might employ children because they're not going to pay those children the same wages, are they? So all of these brands who have this sort of exploitation within their supply chain act like there's nothing that they can do about it. It's happening behind their back. But that is... Quantifiably bullshit
2: yeah i'm so fed up with that oh we we don't have supply chain transparency like we'd like but actually you just say i call bullshit on that the system is set up to require that because yeah well 50 collections a year in fast fashion yeah. right so that's a new collection almost every week that's new clothes on the yeah. floor day. you've
3: created that system, you have created that system. So, don't pretend like you don't have control over a system where you're the person that has the most amount of power. And they
2: put so much demand on these suppliers because these factories have to pay up front for the materials, they have to pay for the labor before they get paid. And mm, Let's talk about the pay up campaign because obviously, shops closed during the worst part of the the lockdowns, the pandemic, people weren't buying in shops. And what happened? Tell us about it.
3: So back in 2020, you know, we were all like, we'll just be locked down for two weeks. It'll be, don't worry, it'll be fine. <laughs> Fast forward mm-hmm. two years later, we are still like, hmm, it's really not that safe. Um, so back in 2020, when we first went into lockdown and all the stores closed, the government was offering, you know, money to corporations, which really kind of, annoys me because they aren't giving that same support to small business all of these brands who have brick and mortar stores basically decided the clothing that they had already ordered and the factories had already completed that they wouldn't be paying for it mm. because that's how the system works it gives all the power to the brands to walk away to not pay for things to leave factories with you know millions of pieces of garments they're they can't do anything with and they paid for the materials and the labor has already been done so when this first happened and we went into lockdown i would say most of the big multinationals thought that they would pull this they were like ah well you know we're not open so we're not going to pay for that sorry (sighs) but then when groups like remake caught wind of it um and started to really publicize what was happening. And it started to hit mainstream news. A lot of brands were like, ah, just joking. We'll pay for it. No worries. But there's still some that will, that did not pay for their clothing and never will. Yeah. And uh, there's a, there's a list going. And if you are curious about that, go to remake World's website and you can see the complete list there. Um, And from the beginning, it was all your favorite brands. Like Mm -hmm. if a brand is a corporation that has more than $400 million in sales and ethics isn't a core part of their business, just assume that they tried it.
2: Yep. And it's horrifying because when you have trained yourself, like we have, to think about what that means to the humans at the end of the supply chain, that means whoever stitched that clothing under probably not even minimum wage. I mean, like yeah, horrible conditions and not much pay, they didn't get paid at all.
3: They didn't get paid at all. And when you have someone who's already on the, you know, fringes of the pay scale, you know, very close to starvation wages, and then you just take away that, you've just got starvation, right? Yeah. So a lot of people went hungry. A lot of, there was a lot of economic strife due to these brands who are billion dollar companies, right? Mm-hmm. Just being like, nah, we're not going to pay for it. We don't have to. We don't have to, like, we're going to let the most marginalized people of our planet take the hit, even though our owner could sneeze this amount of money and not even miss it. Like, shocking.
2: That is the system. And actually, that is something to keep saying over and over and over again. It's not that the system is broken. That is the system. That is how it's set up to favor those who have the power. So let's point out a few key facts, like, what percentage of garment workers are women? um let's talk about the race to the bottom. more than 80
3: yep. percent more than 80 percent of garment workers are women which makes an intersectional feminist issue especially when every brand of the sun wants to make a t-shirt that says feminism while like ripping off women <laughs> like that's yeah. that's the irony of it it's like right now we're at a place where movements can be so commodified and it's been like that for a while i would argue naomi klein makes that case in no logo like yeah. I was joking about, has every decision of my life been a marketing moment? Because one of the things that she talks about in the book is Cool Britannia. (laughs) And when I heard that, I felt so seen. I was like, drag me, drag me for living in this country based off of how cool it was in the 90s. Um, But um, yeah, so it's it's this thing where... Every movement manages to get commodified and usurped by capitalism. So feminism, girl power—you um, know—all of all of these things that we talk about—and now it's even to the point where, like, paying fair wages is a marketing tool, yeah. where it shouldn't be a marketing tool. That is the bare minimum of human decency, right? But because we don't have a system in place where anyone is held accountable for not treating humans decently then that is how you get to a place where like people are like we pay fair wages and that's something that can be used in marketing. But like, it's pretty messed up that like we're supporting systems where people aren't being paid fairly
2: at all. And I'm saying this to the women in particular listening to this podcast right now, if we consider ourselves feminists, we cannot continue to buy clothing in which other women have been heavily exploited there is, yeah. I mean, unionization is crushed in a lot of these places. So if the label yeah. in your clothes says Bangladesh or India or mm-hmm. anywhere that doesn't have really fairly, you know, standard labor laws, you can bet someone is exploited in the making Even
3: of that Bulgaria, you know, yeah. we talk about like uh, Asia in particular, but exploitation happens in America and it happens yeah. in Europe as well. And it the UK. It happens in Leicester. Yeah. Leicester, yeah. you know, so... You know, and it's always the most marginalized people. So like a lot of the factories in Leicester will employ refugees, you know, people that are in extreme desperate measures. And it's that's how the system has always worked by exploiting people who have no other recourse.
2: Yeah. And it makes them more vulnerable to more exploitation, like sexual abuse yeah. or physical abuse at work so yeah and, and this is something that I really really want to drive home to people is like actually start to look at the labels and think about the person behind it because also the other thing that gets used a lot and this drives me crazy is the grain washing of things where I remember huh, a few years ago a really well-known high street brand in the UK started making fair trade t-shirts but they were still being stitched in sweatshops. So the cotton was fair trade, but they had no assurances around the labor. And that was Mm. just horrifying. So when somebody says this is eco, this is sustainable. Yeah, but who made it? Because that's what I want to know. You probably get this a lot. I get messaged by brands every once in a while, especially as a yoga teacher asking me to like, you know, wear some of their clothing or whatever. And I always go straight back and look at their website and see what are their ethical credentials. And if they don't mention human labor, they don't mention labor conditions. I message them and I ask, yeah. and most of the time I don't get a message back, but it means yeah. they haven't thought about it. They're just like, well, we make it out of recycled fabric and it's made yeah. somewhere where you're like, yeah, but what did people, what were people paid to make this for you? Cause I don't want to wear exploitation managed- in the yoga studio.
3: People have managed to separate sustainability from human treatment. So Mm -hmm. like people don't understand, I think, and I I think that this is an easy thing to, to do if you're not within these conversations all the time. Ethics refers to people. Sustainability refers to material and the planet. So Which I hate. If someone says, I spent my I career on
2: picking that and being like, no, always, sustainability always, is everything. It's a Sustainability
3: social... should be how you treat people yeah. as well. Yeah. And that's what I tell people. That's what I'm looking for. But you need to understand that a lot of brands have separated the two. Oh, they so they might do. say that something is sustainable, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't made in an exploitative way where someone wasn't paid fairly to produce so, that garment. That is
2: a good tip. So if you are looking for clothing that is truly ethical in all ways in terms of impact on the planet and on people look deeper when it says sustainably sourced or like well, sustainable line look at what that means for humans what and what i the planet.
3: what i tell people in general is don't even look for sustainability look for ethics look for mm-hmm. the brands that can tell you hand on heart that every person within their supply chain was paid fairly because what you will find is the vast majority of brands that you know off the top of your head can't do this. And that's what we should all be pushing for because there is actually a really great book that's come out that's made the case that um, that paying fairly can actually help the environment. And a book that's come out that is called The Business of Less, The Role of Companies and Businesses on a Planet in Peril. And it's by a man named uh, Roland Gayer. And it came out, and what the book declares is it makes an economic case for declaring that labor, rather than green products or material, hold the key to social and environmental sustainability. Um, So Elizabeth Klein wrote a really great article about this, and Klein explains that in Geyer's book, An Extra $100 a Week and that's what's needed to reach a living wage in Bangladesh and India would immediately cut 65.3 megatons of CO2 out of the global economy. So that's the first thing, but if you really want to simplify and boil it down, if all of these brands have to pay fairly, they won't be able to produce as much crap and producing so much crap is why we are in this environmental mess. Basically is that mm-hmm. it's, we want to produce all the things We want it all really cheaply. We don't want to pay anyone to do it. But if you have to pay everyone who is within your supply chain fairly, then you're probably not going to be making as much crap as you're making.
2: (laughs) The point here is actually, if you want to do better, you're going to probably have to decide to stop buying from the vast majority of brands you currently buy from. Mm -hmm. And actually sit with that discomfort a bit because it doesn't need to be that uncomfortable. If you're just like, I'm only going to buy things I truly love that made yeah. me feel good. What a
1: great feeling is well,
3: that? I had to do that and people act like this is so off putting, but what you need to realize is if you're a person who's really deep into these systems, you probably already have enough clothing in your closet to last you for like the next five years. Like when I moved over here, I had to probably, decrease maybe 50% of what I owned. And a lot of it was clothing that had grown too small for me. So there was no point in taking it anyways. And I had to do it thoughtfully because I know how these systems are pernicious. And so I'm still doing it. When I go home to my parents' house, I still have stuff that I need to go through. Um, but getting decreasing thoughtfully was actually a really good exercise for me Mm. because I was looking at so many of my shopping mistakes in the past and realizing exactly how much clothing I have. Now, a lot of the stuff I moved here with, I'm still wearing today. Like, Some of it has gotten too small because our bodies change, but I had so much clothing that I'm still wearing things from 10 years ago and they're still fine, you know, especially if it was a little bit bigger. So it still fits me, that sort of thing. I didn't need to shop the way I was shopping ever. That was something that I was choosing to participate in. It wasn't a, oh, I have to choose between keeping my lights on or buying trousers for work. No, I was over buying because we overproduce and overconsumption is normalized in our society. And I think you need to realize if you're that person doing that as well. And I think it's way more of us than we like to believe.
2: I went through a clothes swap at a friend's house on Saturday. And in going through my closet to try to find some things to take, I had this wonderful realization that it has taken a few years. I mean, I've been to a few clothes swaps a year, pre-pandemic, and this is the first one I've been to lately. But it took years of slowly reducing to get to the point where I was like, I literally don't have anything that I want to get rid of now. Like, I wear most of my things. And I have, oh, a quarter of the clothes I used to have. And it feels so good because everything I have, I love. And I want to death. Yes. And, yeah, it just changes the energy. Because if anybody's Marie Kondoed their life – you start to realize how much energy it takes to wade through a lot of stuff. It's actually quite stressful. Yeah. So that's kind of a little plug on how actually having this and buying this feels good. But I also think this is a good moment to talk about what happens when you donate clothes, because that's kind of a get out for a lot of us. And, you know, I've certainly been in that moment where I'm like, you know, I, I make myself feel better by shopping. And then I just have a clear out once a year or every season and I donate stuff. What actually happens when we donate clothing.
3: Yeah. So um, the thing is, in the last 30 years, the amount of clothing that we as shoppers has amped up, we buy five times more clothing than people bought in 1990. So keep that in your head because I know we're all tempted to go, not me. But guess what? It's probably <laughs> you. It is probably yeah. you. It was me. I'm guessing it was you. It was me. Yeah. Um, so we buy five times more clothing than we used to. There's more clothing pumped out every year. Currently, the fashion industry pumps out 150 garments a year. At the time of writing consumed, the number I had was 100 billion. But just recently for an article, I had to look it up. And we're now up to 150 billion garments every year being produced by the fashion industry. Now, I'm just going to remind you that we only have 7.9 billion humans on this planet so at 150 billion garments i'm just doing the math here it's that's nine zeros isn't it divide it by 7.9 i don't think i'm doing this correctly
2: on live math on
3: the and this is the problem like i'm not a math person <laughs> so you're never, a writer yeah <laughs> i'm a I, talker i'm a terrible math person let me just try it one more time one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, so that's nine zeros, and then I'm going to divide it by seven point nine billion. So that's also one, two, three, four, five.
2: All seven. the math people listening to this podcast are, are like, hopefully cheering us on, but they already have the
3: answer. You know so. what? I can't even do the answer. But let's just say, let's just say. Oh, you know what? I know how I could do this. I know how I could do this. One fifty divided by seven point nine. Ah, here we go. This is the answer I'm looking for. So every year, the fashion industry pumps out 18.9 billion times the human population. So if every human needed, you know, bought 18 items every year. But we also know that every human isn't doing that because 50% of our planet lives on less than $5.50 a day. Mm. Those are not the people who are buying these new garments. So let's just have the population of who can actually even participate in the system. And then it gets even weirder. Um, So we are all buying a lot of clothing. And when you donate it, you're not being as charitable as you think you are because the system is overwhelmed by the fact that fast fashion is our norm. And we are all buying this amount of clothing. Every person you know is doing exactly what you're doing. So you're not being charitable. It's not charity if every person is participating in it, like it would be really great if every person just gave money freely, that would be charitable, but that's not how we work. Instead we go, I don't want to wear this old clothing anymore. Cause it's not cool anymore. Or actually it wasn't good quality and it doesn't look good anymore, whatever. So I know I'll give it away. Except when you donate your clothing currently to a charity, less than 10% of it is going to get sold because there's just so much. The other, you know, 80, 90% is going to either end up being landfilled or it's going to be packed up and sent to the global South where it is a environmental hazard to the places who are receiving this onslaught of clothing from the global Mm -hmm. North. And there are things that we don't even really like think about or quantify, right? Like, so I always tell people, If you change one thing about how you shop, stop buying fast fashion sweaters because they're becoming more 100% polyester, which means that they're not going to wear well. They're not going to last long. And the next winter, you won't want to wear it. And when you donate it, nobody's going to want it because if it doesn't look good, Nobody's going to go, if you know that you wouldn't go into a store and buy that off of the rack, no one else is. But additionally, when your clothing does actually get packed up and sent somewhere else, it's actually going to a warmer climate. So the place that I wrote about in the book is Cantamato and Akragana, Ghana, but they are not the only ones. Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Mm -hmm. so many countries receive this waste and most recently we learned that in Chile, the waste was ending yeah. up in the Atacama Desert, which, that is a fragile ecosystem, which is a part of keeping our planet, like, copacetic, you know? Yeah. You don't want to be messing with the places, like, the driest desert on the on the planet, because our planet is such a delicate balance of these places, and it helps our planet as a whole to thrive, to keep these places, I don't know, free of polyester clothing instead of 66 tons of it. So, basically when you donate your clothing it ends up getting dumped in the global South on people who don't want it and ends up polluting the environment there.
2: And also it ends up in the sea even. So anybody who's concerned about ocean health or microplastics, because that's very top of mind for a lot of people, which is great, but they don't even think about things like microfibers that wash into the water with every wash you do with, you know, clothing, but also that these clothes that we ship off to charity shops, end up in
3: the sea. Yeah. And another thing that you need to recognize, you know, I know we all hate the fossil fuel industry. I certainly do. The fossil fuel industry has pushed to put microfibers into your clothing because they knew that the tide was going to change and that we weren't going to, we were going to be looking at fossil fuels and thinking, okay, we need to wind down off of this. Like they've known for a very long amount of time that that industry is part of the reason why we are in climate crisis. They've known that. Everyone's known it. And they've they've paid papers to mislead you. They've paid experts Mm. to fudge the numbers. They have run complete campaigns, which have put the onus on you as an individual instead of putting it on themselves. They've been very tricky about this. So knowing that one day we were all going to say, we don't really want to deal in fossil fuels anymore because it's actually like killing our planet and it's going to take us with it they decided instead how do we continue to have a usage for our product we flood the market with polyesters and that is why when you go into any big box store 60 70% of that store is going to be polyester and yeah, that has happened in my lifetime yeah it's i've literally seen woven it happen into our lives it's, it's woven, woven into our lives, into our lives. so I think one of two things can happen when we talk about the ocean and the microplastic things. These are my solutions, just spitballing. One, we need to start pushing for legislation that limits the usage of virgin polyester. Mm -hmm. We've got enough polyester on the planet to probably last us for the next hundred years. Like, seriously. So, like, maybe let's stop producing it. Like, yeah. that's, let's let's cut that off at the head, you know? Because that
2: stuff never biodegrades. It never
3: biodegrades. It ends up in your water supply, in your ocean. So we've we've clearly already got a lot of that stuff. So we need to limit the usage of virgin polys. And then the next thing we need is we need regulation. Like, people talk about their solutions, like buying a guppy bag. Or, like, you can buy a filter for your washing machine to filter mm-hmm. microplastics. But... What if we've leveled up and made regulations so that every washing machine had to have a microplastic filter? So possible. So that's one way that we can stop this stream from going directly into our oceans. And then with the mm. polyesters that we already have, like I look at you know, this we, I look at like problems that we're like facing now. So like Insulate Britain is a group of people that are asking the government to insulate homes because under climate crisis, you know, winters will become colder, people will freeze to death. There's a lot of insufficient cold houses in the UK. And so Insulate Britain has made their case by protesting in the street and people get really mad at them, which is really ridiculous. They're They're fighting for you, you know, they're fighting for all mm-hmm. of our futures. But what we don't realize is that every minute a dump truck of textile waste goes into our landfills, did you know that textiles can actually be used to insulate homes? So what if yeah. we had the infrastructure in place where, one, we had textile recycling because currently only 1% of textiles are recycled on our planet? And what if we actually made like some of the polluting companies pay for that sort of infrastructure? And then... You could recycle your clothing easily and your clothing could be turned into insulation to insulate homes. Everybody wins when we have, (laughs) you know, you know what I mean? Like we've got, we've got the solutions, but we need leaders who are brave enough to push for them. But the solutions
2: are there. Where there's a will, there's a way. It's how some of the most brilliant innovations have come about. But now there is a lot of uh, just vested interest in continuing to do things the way that, they're being done exactly so let's personalize this because you also say the future looks both bright and bleak mm-hmm. so we
3: probably led people to a place where they're like "Ugh, what can i do but i just i literally just laid out i was like we've got the solutions. Yeah. we yeah. gotta push for them though we gotta huh. elect people that actually care enough I'm also like, uh, I'm a campaigner,
2: so I'm used to leaving people with like three key messages. Here are three <laughs> things you can do. So hey, we've already got, write a letter. And in fact, Aja in her book has a really brilliant template you can use to write to a fast fashion brand, to write to somebody you've elected who probably wants your vote again, yeah. to ask them to do a specific thing. And also there are so many good campaigns that you can take part in Absolutely. and contribute your letter writing skills I and your share money them. to.
3: And yeah. I share them. If you follow me on social media, I share them in my stories. If you're a Patreon of mine, you get action items every now and then. You know, I try and make it so that we get as many people, sorry, (laughs) I try and make it so that we get as many people signing on board to these things as possible. And I try and make it accessible. So, you know, if you don't know where to begin, I guarantee you, if you look at my stories, there'll be something there that you can really sink your hands into.
2: Yeah, that is something that I love about your work, actually. You do make it easy for people to figure out what to do. It's really easy. And it is really easy. To anyone listening and thinking, oh my gosh, how can I make a difference? Find somebody who can help you figure it out easily. Follow Aja. Follow any number of campaigns I can put in the show notes. Fashion Revolution. Safia Mini is brilliant. She's always doing some Labor behind stuff. the label. Yeah. Yeah. So many. Goes. I, we'll, we'll stack the show notes with links that people yeah, can follow. Totally. Because there's no excuse. And now you know this stuff so you can do better because I'm going to keep quoting your book because it's awesome. One of the ones I liked was whether or not you meant to do harm doesn't outweigh the impact of that harm. So even though your intentions might not be to do harm, if you aren't thinking about what you buy, what, what clothes you buy how they're made where they come from you are doing harm I'm just gonna say it
3: and that guilt doesn't actually like a lot of people get really defensive because they feel guilty your guilt doesn't mm-hmm. help anyone let's like mm-hmm. help people let's let's try and you know yeah for all the is... years that I bought fast fashion I will spend the rest of my life trying to like you know fix those problems yeah but I'm happy to do it because it's better than sitting around just moping you know what i mean (laughs) the
2: discomfort of guilt is a catalyst to take you somewhere else don't get stuck in the guilt because that's just yeah that's a crappy place to be and it's helping no one and it's it's uh, just move on let the guilt show you where to head from there exactly Uh, but also okay i am going to keep quoting you because this was brilliant and so on theme with the discomfort practice you say don't lean into the unseen areas for safety basically don't keep hiding step out of them in order to see the lives of others more clearly and to realize we are all connected you and me connection is a theme that comes up so much with my guests on this podcast and a lot of what you're saying in your book i'm saying in this interview is it's about connecting to how everything is connected and how everything we do and everything we wear and everything we buy is connected to another human being or a lot of human beings so start to see those connections and it's going to make your view of the world a lot richer. It's going to make it more troubling because you're going to have to realize some of the things that you just can't allow yourself to do anymore. But ultimately feeling more connected to other human beings is a richness that no one can take from you and that, you know, it can't be bought.
3: Right. I can tell you unsubscribing and really taking myself out of those systems has only enriched my life. One shopping on a fast fashion cycle is exhausting oh my Mm. god the emails the email spam the emails where they send you a coupon and make you feel like your life will end if you don't get that thing that you kind of want but don't really need I don't miss that (laughs) (laughs) I don't miss every summer going to my wardrobe and going I really like my dresses from last year but I know I'm gonna have to like buy 20 new ones don't miss that yeah. I don't miss the closet cleanouts. I don't miss the guilt of the closet cleanouts. I don't miss feeling constantly compelled to consume even when I didn't want to and I felt tired. I don't miss mm. coming home after a spending like just spree of stuff I don't need and then feeling really grossed out by it later. There are a lot of uncomfortable feelings that come with this cycle of consumption that we don't lean into because it's so heavily normalized in our society, but I don't miss those uncomfortable feelings. I let them go. And it's
2: heavily invested in, I mean, marketing is a science. They know how human psychology works and advertising is masterful. The advertising industry is masterful at getting us to do these things that you talk about just like take a two week fast from shopping. Don't go in the shops where you would buy something. Don't, unsubscribe to those newsletters you get so there are some really practical ways that you can just unplug yourself and see how
3: it feels yeah and consumerism is it's a part of our culture and like i won't ever say that i'm like cured of consumerism that's ridiculous (laughs) but i can tell you i buy a whole lot more books now and buying books makes me really happy and I read the books too. I try and read them before I buy more, but we're still working on that one. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's so much more room to sort of dive into things that maybe you told yourself you didn't have money for in the past. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. now I can always sort of justify the things which I used to say, oh, I don't have that much money for that.
2: I and mean, yeah. I think the thing that I really would like to... To point people toward, and I do this a lot because it's about feeling yourself, about really just tuning in, getting out of autopilot and whatever behavior it is that you're recognizing, you could probably change here, but start to see how you feel when you're doing that thing. Maybe just shopping for something cheap and cheerful that makes you feel good. What drives you to that behavior? You talk about this in your book too. What drives that behavior where you need to consume or you want to feel like you belong or you don't feel good enough? Where does it come from? Is Maybe it social it's, media? Is yeah. it certain
3: hanging out with certain people? Yeah. Is it your work? Is it your job? What is it? Get to the root of that of that feeling and tackle mm. it. Because when you do, you'll be like, Oh wow. I mean, I just remember and I don't mind sharing these things at all, but I remember when I lived with my parents, I used to leave my shopping bags in my car. And I would wait until my mom went to bed and I would sneak outside and get the bags. And I just remember just one night saying to myself, like, what the fuck are you doing with your life? What is going on, Aj? I'm like, let's check in and, like, figure out what's going on here because... This is pretty fucking weird. (laughs) (laughs) My grandma used to do that
2: in like the 60s and 70s. She'd go buy new hats and then put them under the bed for a few weeks. So when she wore it and my grandpa was like, is that a new hat? She'd be like, no, I've had this for forever. (laughs) Because she'd had it under the bed for like a month. Good tactic, grandma. Good tactic. She was a precursor of the fast fashion movement. But yeah, it it is just a really... It's a great call to go deeper and actually understand yourself better. Don't beat yourself up for having been part of the system. We are we are conditioned to be part of the system of consumption. Yeah. We have been conditioned and manipulated to consume at this speed and this level. So don't beat yourself up for that. Yeah. Just recognize that, that that's maybe where you are or maybe... And how do I step out of it? Yeah. How can you do better? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be everything all at once. It's not like you have to like only wear three things, become vegan, and stop liking fashion. You know, it's just sort of, what can you do today?
3: It won't be all at once. One of the things that Mm. I always constantly highlight on my page is that I do wear my old fast fashion. It would be adding to that cycle that we just talked about with dumping on the global south for me to just get rid of everything that's a fast fashion label. (sighs) There's no guarantee that someone else would buy that in a charity shop. And if it still fits me and I still like it, wear the piece. And if somebody compliments it, use it to have a conversation about why you no longer shop at that store. That's what it's good for. You can still wear it. People can still compliment it, but let's have a conversation. And now, you know, when I show off my outfit reels, I always make an effort to state to people that you are not going to have this like sustainable wardrobe overnight so much of what I'm wearing even today has been purchased over the span of 10 years you Mm -hmm. know and that's that's how you grow a wardrobe but like the only people that can run out and buy a brand new sustainable wardrobe are super rich people (laughs) I'm not that and if you're listening, I'm guessing maybe that's not you either, but that's not actually the way to do it. That's the same. It's subscribing to the same attitude of fast fashion, but with sustainable and ethical garments.
2: Yeah. And it's also sort of trying to suddenly find an identity in something as well. It's yeah. like, do this in a way that works for you. And that's authentic for you. You don't have to sort of sign up to the club and be only yeah. sustainable and only but buy certain that's
3: brands. What, but that's also a fast fashion attitude because when you mm. go into like, Fast fashion stores like, you know, Urban or Anthro, they've actually picked out a lifestyle for you. And so if you buy everything on that rack, you're telling people you're cool, edgy, whatever, artsy, that sort of thing. They're selling you a lifestyle where you should be picking your lifestyle for yourself.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, my gosh. We're going to have to stop there, but I... (laughs) Would really love to have you back in a few months. Yeah. Um, Because I want to see what's changed in the next six months. Because I think we're on a really accelerated trajectory of change in the world. Or I see it, I'm seeing it, I'm part of it, I'm working in it. So are you. And I'd love to look back in six months and hear what has happened. You know, what has individual action brought together collectively done? Because there are good stories and we forget that there are a lot of good stories. There is a lot of change and it has
3: to happen. There's a lot of pressure now. For brands to do better but I don't think that there's still enough education for the general public of what that doing better looks like mm-hmm. so I get more I get emails every day from like brands being like we're rolling out a sustainable capsule collection I just keep saying the same thing we don't need a sustainable capsule <laughs> collection how are you actually changing the root of your business to be less fast fashion
2: yeah and that is I know I got I've one of those point. today
3: Got one of those today. So, you know, I still think the general public doesn't quite understand. We don't need sustainable lines. We need this entire business model to change. And that's what's not really happening fast enough. But man, the sustainable lines, there's a new one every day.
2: Yeah. And it's just another way to make money without really having to change the business model. Exactly. Well, any one final, this is always the tough question. Is there one final point you'd like to leave listeners with?
3: Yeah. Try not to buy an item of clothing this week. And if you do buy something secondhand, try and get into, you you know, it's not all solutions are going to work for every person. I know if you're plus size and I am plus size, it's a lot harder than for a standard size person. There are very, there are quite a few brands that don't make my size, which is funny because many of them will approach me and I'll be like, you don't have anything that will fit me. And that's always an awkward conversation. (laughs) So Try and change Mm. something about the way you're doing things, whether it's unsubscribing, whether it's, you know, finally getting into the the resale market. I tell people all the time, you know, if there's like something from a fast fashion brand that you really like, look on eBay and see if they have Mm. it. Because I guarantee you that brand didn't make one. They made 100 million of that item. So there's a very good chance that that somewhere, Someone has the exact item that you want, and they're probably selling it for cheaper than it's selling at the store. <laughs> and so if you change anything about the way you do things, find what works for you and go for it. Whether it's buying more secondhand, whether it's not buying at all, whether it's really limiting what you're going to buy this year and making really, really considered, thoughtful decisions about it. Try and just deviate from the norm and see how that feels for you. Try it on.
2: Mm, I love that. It's just find what works for you, but do something. Do something this week. Yeah. Do it while it's fresh in your mind. And also let us know. DM me, DM Aja. I want to know what you do because this is is how change happens. This is how we get excited together.
3: Unsubscribe from the one place you feel guilty about shopping from. Do it. Mm -hmm. I empower you to do it. Unsubscribe Best. from their emails because we all have those places where we're like, we like, no. And we're yeah. like, I know this isn't good, but I can't stop. So I challenge you to unsubscribe from their emails and unfollow them on social media. Try that on for size. See how it feels. Mm-hmm. If you resubscribe, I won't even know. But Just give it a go. <laughs> see what happens.
2: Aja is not the fast fashion police. Yeah, so, I won't show
3: up and slap your wallet out of your hand. No.
2: I love it because you managed to be this beautiful blend of challenging, but just really encouraging. You want people to be in this together with you, with the rest of us, but you're also going to keep telling the truth. And I, I will continue to appreciate that about you, Aja. So thank you again for who you are in the world, for what you're doing as a result of who you are. Thank you for living your purpose. And thank you for sharing that with all of us today.
3: Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this chat.
0: for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast, and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay